0: Take your Bibles, if you would, please, and turn with to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 19. Matthew, chapter 19, is where I'd like to direct your attention this morning. We're going to read from the first uh, 12 verses of this passage of Scripture, Matthew 19, verses 1 through 12. Uh, if you'll follow along in your copy of God's Word, that will be uh, excellent. This is what the Scriptures say. "'and said, for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother "'and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. "'So they are no longer two, but one flesh. "'Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. "'Why then,' they asked, "'did Moses command that a man give his wife a certificate of divorce "'and send her away?' "'Jesus replied, "'Moses permitted you to divorce your wives "'because your hearts were hard. "'But it was not this way from the beginning.' I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality, and marries another woman, commits adultery. The disciples said to him, If this is the situation between a husband and a wife, it's better not to marry. Jesus replied, Not everyone can accept this word, but only only those to whom it has been given. For there are many eunuchs that were, who were born that way, and there are eunuchs who have been made eunuchs by others, and there are those who choose to live like eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. The one who can accept this should accept it. We're going to talk today about what Jesus said about marriage, about divorce and remarriage. And you can tell, by the way, that the Pharisees brought this issue to Jesus, that it was no less difficult, painful, or controversial then than it is today. There are some of the same social and financial and spiritual and mental pressures then that we experience today. Uh, Admittedly, in Jesus' day, the financial pressures, especially on women, were greater, and, and perhaps today... Uh, There are more social um, pressures involved, but there's still a lot of overlap. This was a difficult question then, and it is a difficult question today. If we understand what Jesus is saying, then we should take it as the challenge that it is. We should be as surprised as the disciples at what Jesus says, because they say, well, Jesus, if you're going to be that narrow, it's better not to get married in the first place. There are apparently less escape hatches than the disciples thought. Every now and then, not very often, but every now and then, if I chaperone some school event, I get to ride a school bus. I can assure you they are no more comfortable today than they were back when I was in school. But one thing that I notice about school buses and how they're different is there's a lot more warnings all over the place when you get on a school bus. There's a lot of red letters everywhere. There are escape exits everywhere. In case of trouble, you can get out through this window and this door and this hatch and this window and that window. You can get, If there's trouble, you can get out any way you want. That's a change. Jesus seems to be going in the opposite direction of the school bus companies. If there's trouble, there's not as many escape hatches as you might want, as you might think about. When it comes to divorce, Jesus wants us to think very carefully first about marriage. If you're going to understand what a divorce is, you need to understand what marriage is first. That was the Pharisees' mistake. They didn't go far enough back in the Hebrew Scriptures. They went to the wrong part Uh, of Moses writing to think about divorce and remarriage and Jesus corrected that in fact that's that's what I want to do this morning is uh, my my plan we're going to cover this under two headings we're going to talk first of all about what a marriage is and then secondly we're going to talk about when a marriage breaks that's kind of what we're going to do as we go through this passage this morning let's start with what a marriage is in the first couple of verses of this passage, Jesus, uh, Matthew introduces this scene to us, and he says, he begins by saying, when Jesus had finished saying these things. That's what Matthew writes whenever he finishes one of Jesus' main teaching sections in Matthew. Remember, there's five of them, and they all end this way, when Jesus had finished saying these things. And now, then Matthew tells us where, he, where he's going. He left Galilee, went uh, into Judea. Matthew doesn't make uh, as big a deal of this as Luke does in his gospel, but Jesus is on a journey in this passage. He is journeying to Jerusalem, just like he told his disciples. He's going to Jerusalem where he's going to be crucified. And Matthew is following Jesus as he travels. It's a reminder to us of of a couple things. Uh, Well, first of all, This is the last time that Jesus is in Galilee before his crucifixion. He's leaving Galilee for the last time. He'll go back there after the resurrection. But this is the end of this portion of his ministry. And he's going to Jerusalem to be crucified. Notice he's not being dragged there. He's not being tricked there. He is going there, traveling with his disciples in obedience to his father to fulfill his father's will, to offer himself as a sacrifice on the cross. And, and part of the journey is controversy. Controversy is part of the journey, and it's increasing in severity, and here's a case where the Pharisees have come to test him, the text says. That word test shows up in Matthew, in Matthew chapter 4, verse 3, about Satan tempting Jesus. If the Bible describes you the same way it describes Satan, that is not a compliment, Remember, as as Jesus is going, the temperature is rising. You who read this text, you who follow Jesus, remember, remember that following him will involve you in conflict with people who are not his followers, that there will inevitably be opposition. Are you going to follow him or not? Is he Lord or not? Will you listen to him or not? That's one of the questions in the background of all of these challenges from the pharisees and other religious leaders this particular test is about divorce why would this be a controversial issue well you can imagine on on the one hand it's a controversial issue in the culture and whenever you take a position on something controversial you're going to alienate people and i think the pharisees are trying to uh turn some of the crowd that's following jesus against him that's understandable Also, you might think about John the Baptist. It wasn't that long ago in the the gospel that John the Baptist made a definitive statement about Herod's divorce and remarriage, and John the Baptist lost his head for it. One wonders if the Pharisees are trying to get Jesus to do something similar, uh, kill two prophets with one divorce, as it were. Um, And so they ask... What are, the reasons, what are the reasons that Moses allowed divorce? Or uh, uh, why, according to Moses, can, can a man divorce his wife? Now, in this culture, uh, a, a man always initiated divorce. It always had to be that way. Women did not have the right to initiate divorce. and in rare occasions, a wife could go to the judge, to a court... And present her case, and the court would then, under certain circumstances, co- uh, uh, command her husband to divorce her, but that was still a husband initiated uh, divorce. What are the reasons? What are the reasons why it's lawful for a man to divorce his wife? And the question that they're asking about is. Uh, based on a passage in the book of deuteronomy chapter 24 which i'm going to show you here in a minute deuteronomy chapter 24 now i'm going to read this passage to you and i want you to think where's the law what is actually being outlawed here divorce is almost tangential to to the to the the concept there's a lot of ifs and then eventually we'll get to a then so you follow along and see if you can trace what is actually being outlawed so here we go if a man marries a woman who becomes displeasing to him because he finds something indecent uh, about her, and he writes her a certificate of divorce, gives it to her, and sends her from his house. We're already just on the if part. All right. And if, after she leaves his house, she becomes the wife of another man. There's a lot of ifs here going on. we will keep going. And her second husband dislikes her and writes her a certificate of divorce a lot of ifs, gives it to her and sends her from his house, or if he dies, now finally we come to the then, I think, here's the law, then, okay, (laughs) her first husband, who divorced her, is not allowed to marry her again after she has been defiled, that, keep going, would be detestable in the eyes of the Lord, do not bring sin upon the land the Lord your God is giving you as an inheritance. So did you you see that here? What actually is being outlawed in Deuteronomy chapter 24? What actually is being outlawed is if a man divorces his wife and she marries a second man, if that second man divorces her or he dies, she can't go back to the first husband and marry him again. Was that a problem in Israel? Apparently enough that Moses had to write this law. And maybe, maybe... The, the, the one result of the laws, they're trying to put the brakes on divorce. Moses is trying to, to slow them down. If you divorce, there's, there's no easy path to reconciliation here, to remarriage. But in the passage, divorce is, is presupposed. It's not prescribed. It's not described. It's presupposed. It's something that happened. And, and the, the Pharisees, there were arguments and discussions about the cause, the legitimate cause of this divorce, Ken, can you show us verse 1 again? Deuteronomy 24, verse 1. Look what it says. If a man marries a woman who becomes displeasing to him because he finds something indecent about her, that's the phrase that they argued over. Something indecent. What does it mean for a husband to find something indecent about his wife? Well, there were two different schools of thought about this. There was a narrower interpretation, and there was a broader interpretation. The narrow interpretation said that something indecent was some sort of sexual violation. Maybe adultery, but normally the the penalty for adultery was stoning but some sort of narrowly defined sexual violation. If he found something like that in her, then a divorce was allowable. That's the narrower view. There are some people, though, who had the broader view of divorce in this passage and almost said, for any reason... For any reason, any reason why a husband is displeased with his wife, he could divorce her. For, for any reason, if she burnt the toast, if she um, uh, wasn't as attractive to him anymore, any reason at all, uh, divorce was allowed. Now, in Jesus' day, it seemed like most people preferred the second view, the broader view. I want as many escape hatches from this as possible. I want as much freedom as possible. They might have been philosophically committed to the narrow view, it should be something really serious, but practically, I just wanted my freedom. Where do you think people are today in their understanding of the legitimate reasons why someone could get divorced and remarry? Do you think most people in our culture have a narrower view or do they have a broader view? No bride walks down the aisle thinking about divorce. No one on their wedding day is like, eh, it was a good party, but, you know, it might not work out, and I just, it, it'll be over. I, I can end it. It'll be all right. No, no bride, no groom thinks. They, they may have <laughs> six divorces in their past. They may, they, they may have, have, have um, terrible relationship habits. But, but every bride and groom on that day thinks, this is the one that's going to work. This We're going to be the exception. We're going to break all the rules. We're going to make it. This is the marriage that's going to be happily ever after marriage for me. Jesus answers th- their question by going back to Genesis 1 and 2. And he tells us what marriage is. He says, verse 4, haven't you read... That at the beginning, the creator made them male and female? Here's what marriage is. Jesus says, first, marriage is for a man and a woman, or if you prefer, a dude and a dudette. But marriage is for a man and a woman, There are two different kind of image bearers. Haven't you read this? This is how the creator made them. Two different kind of image bearers. There's male image bearers and female image bearers. And immediately Jesus is on a serious collision course with our culture. Christians actually have always been, when we talk about sex and marriage, we've always been on a collision course with our culture. Even the first followers of Jesus, um, uh, the, the Roman culture in which they preached the gospel thought that their views of premarital sex and extramarital sex were repressive and, and oppressive and just terrible and unrealistic. So Christians have always been on a collision course with culture when it comes to sex and marriage. And, and now Jesus is, well, we, we got this idea from him. Have you ever heard somebody, to say, somebody say something like this? Jesus never said anything about homosexuality, so I don't think we should say things about homosexuality. We should major on the things that Jesus spoke about because Jesus didn't talk about homosexuality. We shouldn't talk about homosexuality that much either. Have you ever heard anybody say that? There's two problems with that view. First of all, it's the wrong way to read the Bible. Uh, think about this this way with, this, with me. Uh, How many of these words in this book are Jesus' words? This is why I don't like red-letter versions of the Bible. I have one. It's terrible. Uh, There's two problems with this Bible. You know what the two problems are. It's got red letters, and there's no maps in this Bible. It's so embarrassing. But the reason I have this Bible is because the words are big. So, uh, but... How many, how many of these words in this book are Jesus' words? All of them, whether they're recorded by Matthew or recorded by Paul, all of them are Jesus' words. Did Jesus say anything about homosexuality? Oh, he certainly did. The other problem with that passage, Jesus never said anything about homo- uh, that claim. No, uh, Jesus never said anything about homosexuality, so we shouldn't. Well, there's this passage here where Jesus says God made them male- And female, there's male image bearers and there's female image bearers, and the difference is part of God's design. We are at the point in the sexual revolution in our culture where the focus is largely on transgender issues. Uh, You might be tempted, you might be tempted sometimes if you see a man or woman who is uh, a transgender, you might be tempted to sneer, to dismiss them, to think, that's just weird, they're just weird. But but questions about your gender identity can be deep and significant. This, this can be a, a, to feel this alienation from your own body can be painful and confusing and, and discouraging and frightening. Be careful because you look and, and you might think that's weird, underneath what you think is weird is someone who has endured a great deal of pain. At this point in time, the preferred way to respond now to those with uh, uh, gender um, questions is to bring your body into conformity with your identity. So we use surgery or hormones or medication to bring your body, your outside, into conformity with your inside, how you feel on the inside. In contrast to that, I would think that the Bible, I definitely think the Bible commends us to address the identity and bring the identity into conformity with the body. Both of those paths are going to be painful, but one of them is in uh, uh, coherence with the notion that God made them male and female, that God created us and gave us the bodies that we have. Vaughn Roberts said that, that uh, bringing your body in conformity to your identity is the Lego view of the body. Your, leg, your body's like a Lego set, and we just need to take uh, pieces off and put pieces on, and we can rearrange the body however we want. It's like Legos. He says, though, that the scriptures would teach us to view the body like an art restorer views uh, a piece of art. Maybe damaged a bit by time and by uh, uh, circumstances, but, but we, we, we restore what the artist had in mind. We, we bring it back to its original made, created design. God made them male and female. Obviously here, this eliminates the possibility of same-sex marriage because marriage is for a man and a woman. Now, secondly, Jesus says here, he reminds us of what Moses wrote, that marriage is a one-flesh union. Marriage is a one-flesh union. On that glad day, that glad wedding day, vows are exchanged, a covenant is publicly announced, and God does something new. God joins together. God makes one flesh. I get to announce it. It's my privilege. I stand up and I say, For as much as you, groom, and you, bride, have consented in holy wedlock and have witnessed the same before God in this company, and thereto confirmed the same by giving and receiving each one a ring by the authority committed unto me as a minister of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, it is with great joy. I've told you this before, you gotta smile big when you say that. It is with great joy that I pronounce you husband and wife according to the ordinance of God in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. And God does something new. He he makes this new union that's going to be enacted privately later, but this is what God does. He makes one new unity, one new thing, one new flesh. And, and what's, what's amazing about this union is that man and that woman are not less than they were before. They were two, now they're one. They're not less than they were before, but they're more than they were before. But, but they're more of themselves. Jay Kessler said this. Look, look what he said. He's a, Jay Kessler was president of Taylor University for a number of years. God made us all individuals, then he made half of us male and the other half female, then he created marriage. Unless you think this was a cosmic practical joke, he must have had a reason. One explanation is that God wanted to challenge us to grow and change to our fullest potential as human beings, and there's no better laboratory than marriage to help each other do that. When we stay at a hotel, one of the first things we do, our family, we turn on the television and we try to find HGTV. We don't have cable at our house, so when we go to a hotel, we binge watch HGTV. And, and you know the, the plot of every HGTV show is the same, right? Um, this, uh, a couple starts with this, uh, uh, or a customer, client, starts with a, a beleaguered house, uh, and, and, and in the course of the show they, they go into the beleaguered house and they empty out all the junk and because if it's not open concept it's not sellable they tear down walls and they paint everything and they put new carpeting down and they paint outside and they, they put new landscaping and then at the end in the last two minutes of the show they uh, open the shade or they, they uh, drop the curtain and they show the client their house and everybody goes oh! right? I can't believe it. Is this even my house? And they cry. It doesn't look the same. It's so much better. And, and, and happy tears. And, and oh, I just I just can't believe it. In healthy marriages, that's what God does. In healthy marriages, God takes a man and a woman and through their relationship with each other, he transforms them. So, so that you, you say, after 25 years, I can't believe it. I can't believe it. it's It's so much different. He's so much better. <laughs> She's so much, so much. Uh, wow. Wow. Oh. Not physically. <laughs> Not physically, right? I mean... No one ever looks as good as they do on their wedding day. It's all downhill from there. That's just the way it is, in rare exceptions. It reminds me, reminds me of the grandmother who brought her daughter to, the wedi- to a wedding once, and her uh, uh, granddaughter said, Mom, uh, Grandma, why is the bride wearing white? And she said, well, she's wearing white because white is a symbol of her happiness. This is the happiest day of her life. And then her granddaughter said, why is the groom wearing black? <laughs> That has nothing to do with my sermon. I'm going to keep going, okay? God does, God does in healthy marriages transforming work. And your highest allegiance, Jesus says this, your highest allegiance now is to your spouse, not to your father, not to your mother. That would have been uh, countercultural. Not to your children, but to the one with, with whom God has united you. You are now one new thing. Now, how should we think about breaking that if this is what God has done and what God has intended? How how can we think about breaking that? The Pharisees think they have Jesus backed into a corner because it sounds like he's saying, no divorce. That sounds like what he's saying, no divorce. So they say, well... You and Moses have a problem, Jesus, because what about where Moses uh, commanded a certificate of divorce to be given? Uh, What do you say about that? That's uh, verse 7. And then Jesus starts to talk about what happens when a marriage breaks, and he says a couple things. First, he says that divorce is a concession to uh, to human sinfulness. Divorce is a concession to human sinfulness. He corrects them, you know what I said? He says they say verse 7, why did Moses command that a man give his wife a certificate of divorce? Jesus says Moses permitted, there's a difference, there's a difference between command and permission. It's not required, divorce is not required. And he says the reason that Moses permitted this is because your hearts were hard. That's not though the way it was supposed to be. It's not God's design but we live in a sin-stained world. And sometimes in a sin-stained world, divorce is permissible. Sometimes it's even advisable. It's, this is a concession to our sinful condition. It's, it's not never anything beautiful, wonderful, or satisfying. The Bible has concessions like this in it, in other places, look at Romans chapter twelve, verse eighteen. If it is possible, as far as it depends upon you, live at peace with everyone. Now, think about that verse. If if all this verse was was the last bit, live at peace with everyone. That's all it said. This could be a, a significant burden because some people don't want to be peaceified. Some people don't want to be lived with in peaceful conditions. So Paul, recognizing this broken world in which we live, says, if it is possible, as far as it depends on you, as much as you can, live at peace with everyone. Concession. Because of your hard hearts, Jesus says. Hard hearts are not something that we followers of Jesus can own, but you may be married to a hard-hearted person. Divorce is a concession to human sinfulness. Secondly, he says, uh, he talks about the limited circumstances. Think about limited circumstances under which divorce and remarriage is allowed here by the Lord Jesus. Verse 9, I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife, here it is, except for sexual immorality, And marries another woman, commits adultery. Now, this word sexual immorality here is not the normal word in the Bible for adultery. It's a broad word for sexual sins. It would include things like homosexuality. I think it would include things like a a deep-set pornography addiction, some sort of sexual immorality. This one flesh union that God has put together is so tight that only limited circumstances can break it. When a follower of Jesus is married to an unrepentant adulterer or porn addict or homosexual, it is permissible to divorce and remarry without making you guilty of adultery. If you divorce and remarry under other circumstances, you have committed adultery for which you need forgiveness from God. Some people wonder about that remarriage part here, that remarriage part. But, but if, if Jesus says, if the divorce is permissible, then remarriage is permissible too. That's what a certificate of divorce is. A certificate of divorce is a statement that says, you are now free to remarry someone else. You're not bound to me. That's what the certificate of divorce is for. Public proof, I can marry someone else. If the divorce is permissible, the remarriage is permissible either. Limited circumstances. Now, are there other circumstances that the Bible identifies? I think probably in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 10. We'll, we'll start here. To the married, I give this command not I, but the Lord. Uh, Jesus said this. A wife must not separate from her husband, but if she does, she must remain unmarried, or else be reconciled to her husband, and a husband must then divorce his wife. That's the general rule of thumb. Verse 12, to the rest I say this, I, not the Lord, if any brother has a wife who is not a believer and she's willing to live with him, he must not divorce her. And if a woman has a husband who is not a believer and he's willing to live with her, she must not divorce him. So a different faith doesn't mean divorce is advisable or permitted here. But look at verse 15. It says, if the unbeliever leaves, let it be so. The brother or the sister is not bound in such circumstances. God has called us to live in peace. I know that good and godly people disagree about this. But I think that what the scripture teaches are the limited circumstances under which uh, Jesus, the apostles, permit marriage, divorce, and remarriage are sexual morality and uh, abandonment by an unbelieving spouse. And I confess, I don't think that that's hard to understand. There have been thousands of pages written about this and grammatical questions and vocabulary questions. I understand that, but I, I don't think that's that hard to understand. What I do think is, is hard is applying it. You can see that. because I think that's why the disciples say in verse 10, whoa, whoa, whoa. Jesus, if, if you're going to be that narrow, don't you realize what you're doing? You're saying that, some people are going to have to endure what are really hard marriages. Oh, maybe, maybe it's better to be single than to get married. If, if, if we're going to be that narrow, have you ever had the thought go through your mind? If I knew then what I know now, I wouldn't have gotten married. Jesus is so out of sync He's so out of sync. Let's think about some of the complications here, some of the things that make what Jesus says here hard. Uh, uh, Tim Keller has written about some of the social pressures that we put on marriage or upon ourselves that make what Jesus says here hard. He enunciates them in various contexts. He says we live in an era, he's not the only one to say this, of expressive individualism. We are expressive individualists, and and, uh, we need to have freedom. To be happy, you have to be able to express yourself, and you can't be constrained by anything. And what Jesus is saying here is so constraining. I don't want to be trapped because then I can't be happy because I can't be free to be myself. And Jesus is trapping us in marriage. That's why um, so many people opt to live together instead of getting married But every study that's ever been done has shown that if you live together before you get married, your marriage will be more unstable. There's something about this one flesh relationship that demands that permanence. Then uh, Tim Keller says uh, at other points, he talks about not just expressive individualism that makes what Jesus is saying hard. He talks about uh, his concept, apocalyptic romance. Apocalyptic romance is the idea that out there for you, there is someone who will satisfy you for eternity, someone who will be the ultimate spouse for you, who uh, will be completely fulfilling and satisfying and will will meet every need that you have and will be absolutely perfect for you. This, there will be the end-all, be-all spouse, and they're out there somewhere, and if you're unhappy with the spouse you have, you probably didn't find the right person. If you divorce them, you'll go find the right person apocalyptic romance. Um, Esther Perel is a counselor and a writer. I, I don't think I agree with her very much, but I do like what she said here at this TED Talk she gave several years ago. Marriage used to be primarily an economic institution in which you were given a partnership for life in terms of children and social status and succession and companionship. But now... We want our partner to still give us all these things, but in addition, I want you to be my best friend and my trusted, confidant and my passionate lover to boot, and we'll live twice as long. So we come to one person, and we basically are asking them to give us what's once, was what once an entire village used to provide. Give me belonging, give me identity, give me continuity, but give me transcendence and mystery and awe, all in one. Give me comfort, give me edge, give me novelty, give me familiarity, give me predictability, give me surprise. If you lay these burdens on your spouse, you're going to suffocate your marriage. Apocalyptic romance. Marriage has got to do everything. And Jesus, you're constraining what this this just seems impossible. Let's, Let's complicate things even further, shall we? Uh, so, limited circumstances. Sexual immorality, abandonment by uh, an unbelieving spouse. Uh, are there other circumstances? I, you're thinking it. I'm thinking it. What about abuse? Spousal abuse. What about abuse of drugs or alcohol or a gambling addiction? Uh, what if your partner is a compulsive liar? Can we add things to the limited circumstances that Jesus and Paul identified? Oh, Does that make anybody in the room nervous to think about adding to what the Bible says? Should make you nervous. Uh, certainly in, in these circumstances, separation is mandated, perhaps for a long time. But what about divorce and, and, and remarriage? With hesitancy, I say, especially in the case of abuse, we should add that to the list. And I say that with great hesitancy because I will argue that abuse is as destructive as the one flesh union as sexual immorality is. But be very careful. I would never do this without the counsel of the elders. Advice this without, without help from someone. Let's make this more complicated, shall we? That's complicated enough. Let's be more complicated. Jesus seems to envisage a situation here where there's an innocent party and a victim. There is the adulterer and then there's the innocent person. Circumstances are rarely that easy. There may be in the marriage a long history of anger and conflict and bitterness and and mistreatment. And it's possible, I think I've had conversations in the past with spouses who are looking for an out, so they say things like, um, I caught him looking at porn so I can leave, right? I can get out of this, right? You'll give me permission to do this, right? Because they're looking for the out because the marriage has been hard. So they'll take any excuse. They're, they're, they're trying. Remember what, what Jesus uh, said about forgiveness or we, we, what I mentioned about forgiveness. When it comes to forgiveness, we often look for reasons not to forgive, why we're the exception The same thing can happen in divorce. We look for reasons. It's easy to look for reasons to get out of a hard marriage. I don't think it's a coincidence that this passage on divorce follows the passage on forgiveness. I don't think that what Jesus is saying here is hard to understand. I do think it's hard to apply. Maybe I I could finish by suggesting how you might hear this passage. Some of you. This morning, you just need a a little bit of a reminder about what God made when he made marriage. Some marriages are easier. Some marriages are harder. Some seasons of marriage are easier than other seasons of marriage. But God intended this one flesh union created by covenant to uh, bring life to you. And maybe you've settled into a few habits or you're settling into some habits that um, you, you need to shake off. Some of you, perhaps this morning, you need deeper encouragement. You need to hear the narrowness that's in this passage. You will be able to find, it will not be hard for you to find anywhere in this world, encouragement for you to leave a hard marriage. You can find many people who would encourage you to do so. Jesus is not one of them, though remember Jesus has the worst bride in the universe he has the worst spouse and he still turns our attention to marriage something that might help you perhaps even in this passage is this conversation that Jesus has about eunuchs (laughs) we don't talk about eunuchs very often There's three reasons, Jesus says, why someone might be a eunuch. Somebody might be born a eunuch. There might be some sort of birth defect or genetic abnormality, some intersex person, perhaps, that that marriage would not be for them. There are some people, we don't have this in our culture, uh, it was less prominent in Jewish culture, but uh, they were surrounded by people who practiced this, who made eunuchs. Watch over the harem, watch over the treasury. They were made eunuchs. And then he says there's some people who are eunuchs for the kingdom of God who, for Christ's sake, have set aside marriage. Jesus is telling us and reminding us that there is something better and richer to live for than even marriage. It's for Christ's sake. That's why, for Christ's sake, we press on and we endure in hard marriages. Several years ago, there was a billboard put up by a law firm in Chicago. Wonderful. And on this billboard, on each side of the billboard, uh, at the bottom was the law firm contact information, and on each side was a picture of a very handsome man and a very uh, scantily clad, beautiful woman. And the tagline in the middle of the billboard said, life is short, get a divorce. And then contact the lawyer to get a divorce. Life may be short, but remember, the kingdom of heaven is forever. We heed what our Lord says about divorce and remarriage for Christ's sake. Let's pray, shall we? Father, we come before you this morning and we do thank you for this passage that is uh, a, a challenging, but where Jesus speaks to this um, prevalent challenge. Lord, um, We are grateful to you for your grace. We're grateful to you for your grace in hard seasons of marriage. We're grateful to you for your grace that comes in happy days of marriage. Lord, I pray that you would help us to rely upon you to suffer well when occasion may require. And Lord, do what you indicate marriage is for in your word, make us more like the Lord Jesus through the relationships that we have. Help us to value the kingdom of heaven even more than apocalyptic romance or the freedom to express ourselves. Grant that we might be a congregation that cheers one another on in pursuing uh, our spouses. For Christ's sake, Grant that we might show mercy to those who have walked through deep valleys. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.